right, so uh, with the summer comes some really odd things that, that, you know, if you're a pastor, you think about. I've got two series lined up that are just the ones that kind of get me excited. I mean, again, I'm always excited to share the Word with you, right? Okay, let's all assume that, hopefully, right? <laughs> you know, on the good days. But there are certain topics that get me, like, excited, okay, to talk about. And these next two are those, okay? And so I'm so excited to start that. Um, just kind of a preview. Next Sunday, we'll start something called The Lost Religion. And I'm super pumped about that. In essence, we're going to talk about what's, what Christianity is supposed to look like. And, you know, it's going to be just a blast. But to get ready for that, I need a Sunday, you know, again, a second Sunday more chilled out, more laid back. And everyone's saying, how can you even be more laid back than you guys are? But we're going to be even more laid back, kind of like last Sunday, you know, just kind of have a two-way conversation between us. So to segue us between this nine-week series on worship and, and, of course, the next one, I want to talk about something um, that I feel like God's been putting on my heart. And this morning our topic is called The Table. Are you, are you interested yet? No, that sounds lame. The Table. Here's the gist of it. The table, a physical table, okay, Specifically, a table that we sit down to eat at. We can call it the fellowship table. It is a picture that you see throughout the entire Bible. And I, I want to pull that picture out and kind of examine it and how it applies to us this morning. Let's start with the Scriptures, though. Let's go to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. For all you guys who know me, you're, you're a little bit surprised, aren't you? This is like the third week in a row that we've gone to this book. This is like the one book I don't teach from a lot, but for some reason there's been some things that we need to pull out of it. And so I'm not sure if it means that we need to have like an end time series or something. <laughs> you guys are like, oh, Lord, put on your seatbelts. Here we go. Book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write these words. The faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I figured I'd encourage everyone this morning. Start the morning on a high note, right? Keep going. And so I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. So you can become rich. And white clothes to wear. So you can cover your shameful nakedness. And salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Verse 19. Here's the part that we're really going to kind of focus on this morning. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. And they with me. Now, this passage is loaded. Um, I'm sure you guys can see all the different analogies, the pictures there. You've got the salve, you've got the clothes, you've got the gold that's been refined by fire. In essence, he's talking to people who have wealth, but he's saying, trade in the wealth you think you have for my gold. Okay, that obviously comes with something, comes with fire, which is a symbol of sacrifice and suffering. 
We'll talk about that some other day, right? You guys are like, this is the summer. We don't need to get into that kind of stuff. All right, let's move on. All right. So you guys see the pictures, okay, right? The white clothes of righteousness, okay, uh, right living. The salve, which is the, the, you know, the anointing of the Spirit. It's a picture of grace. Fast-forwarding that to the next part, what we see here is this picture of he's speaking to this body of people, and he's saying, you think that you're one place, but you're really not. You have a... You are delusional. You are deceived. He's speaking to them saying, you believe that everything between us is hunky-dory, but the truth is, things are not okay. And what's not okay between us is that you are neither hot nor cold. You haven't made a decision yet if you're going to draw close to me, if you're going to pull out, if you're going to go all in, or if you're going to give up. You are stuck in the middle. And what's wrong with this picture is... It's not just what they're doing or what they're not doing. It's the fact that they are dictating the terms with God. I'm not sure if you can see that. The problem is that they're the ones who are dictating the distance. Okay? The, in essence, they're the ones who are determining the relationship that they're going to have with God. They're saying, okay, I'll take this much of you. You can come that far, but stay right there. And I'm going to come this far, and this is, this is perfect. We're going to stay right here because this is the way that I like it. And, and so we see that he goes through, he says, things are wrong. Here's all things that you need to fix it. But here's the end goal. Here's what he desires. In, in verse 20, he's saying, I am near to you. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. So he's gone through this long list of talking about what is wrong with the situation, what is wrong with the relationship, and he's already, he's laid out the end goal. If they do everything he's asked, his heart, his desire is that he would come in, okay, whatever that separation is, again, you know, it it doesn't explain what the door is, it doesn't explain why he's waiting at the door, but if they would be obedient, they would be able to end up sitting together at a table having fellowship. Now, the table is an analogy, it's a picture, it's a symbol that we see throughout Scripture. And to understand that, we have to understand the Middle Eastern culture. To eat food at a table with us doesn't quite mean the exact same thing. First of all, how many of you guys still do that? I mean, it's nighttime, you guys bring the kids together, you sit at the table and eat a meal. How many? Okay. If it was the 1950s, how many... (laughs) You know, these families, do you think, would have had the hands go straight up, right? Okay, again, it's a cultural thing, right? It's something that we're not used to anymore. It's kind of lost its value to us. But in the Middle East, it's a value that still exists to this day, the same way it did in his time. And to simplify it, it is a picture of absolute vulnerability. To sit down to eat with someone, you are, in essence, you are making yourself vulnerable to harm. When you're seated at a table, are you able to defend yourself? No. Okay, have you guys seen the weapons that these guys had in the Middle East? These long, crazy swords, right? These little daggers. I mean, when you're sitting at the table, it's not the easiest thing to pull your sword. I mean, come on. Make sense? Are you getting the picture? Okay. Please don't make me do more movements. Okay. So you understand, okay? It's, it's awkward. Secondly, okay, it's a social symbol, meaning... Who you eat with, it defines who you are aligned with. Okay, who is at my level? And so people who are socially, who are 
you know, elite, who are wealthy, who have power, they eat with people who have what? Money and power, okay? And so what happens here is that who you sit with, you are identified with. And if you look at the Gospels with Jesus, what's one of the biggest things that he got attacked for over and over and over again? It wasn't just his teachings, it was what? Who he ate with. Whose home he went into, and who he allowed to sit at the table. Who he had table fellowship with. And so when you think about the table, think about the word fellowship. And so this picture of table is a picture of a deep, a deep level of connectedness. There's an openness, there's a vulnerability, there's a transparency that's going on when you sit at the table with someone. And so in the times of Jesus, so many of his most important teachings about what the kingdom of God is like happened around a what? Table. Nailed it. Happens around a table, okay? Why? Because these people in, in that culture, in this world, those people had no right to sit at the table of Jesus. No right. And in essence, what Jesus was doing, when he chose to sit at the table with the tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, the poor, the beggars, the needy, he was saying, me and you see eye to eye. We are the same. We are at the same level. We have the same access. We have the same status. We are the same. And for someone at the top to humble himself down, what it does is it reshuffles the entire structure. It means everyone else underneath Jesus is being knocked down a couple pegs. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the table, it, it's a picture of fellowship, of deep relationship. There is an openness, a transparency that takes place at the table that doesn't take place in everyday conversation. Okay, in the scriptures, it is a picture of the most open, real, and intimate relationship you can have outside of marriage. If you're taking notes, that's a good one right there. And so the table is fellowship. And so here we see with God, he's saying, what I desire with you is transparency. What I desire with you is for you to be vulnerable. I desire you to put your walls down. I desire you to take a risk to trust me and to come close to me. And at the same time, at the table, for someone who's lower to sit with someone who's higher, there's something to be gained at the table. When I sit down with this person, just by sitting in this person's presence to everyone around, my status was here and now it is here. And so there's also things, there's gifts that God desires to give us at the table. And so when we choose to sit down with him, we're allowing him not only to elevate us, but to put things in our hands. That's a lot. Amen? Are you guys staying with me? I thought today was going to be a laid back day. We'll see. Psalm 23 is one of the verses that we went through a lot. Um, I don't want to go through the whole thing. We've done it two weeks in a row. But just the end there... We've, we've already covered this. He goes through trials, and he, again, through each verse in Psalm 23, he's, he's telling of all the different aspects that he's learned of God. God is my provider. He's my protector. He's my righteousness. He's the one who takes care of me, whatever. And at the end of it, it culminates where? A table. And he does what for me? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And so the culmination of getting to know God is complete and utter transparency and realness 
in vulnerability. Because he's learned God is this, because he's learned God is this, because he trusts God, he allows God to bring him to a place of complete vulnerability with God. And again, it's a picture you see Old Testament, New Testament. The reason I want to start here in Revelation is because my wife likes to text me. I'm not supposed to tell you guys these things, but if you see her texting, you know she's texting. Always critiquing me. Hey, you need to just, just try this. Straighten your shirt. I was on a roll, honey. <laughs> Putting, okay. Anyways, stay with me. I'm going to try to get back on that train. Wherever I was going, let's get back there. So I want to start in Revelation, okay? Because we see a New Testament picture of this, of this problem. And what we see in all the letters to the churches in the opening of this book is we see that these are the common problems that have plagued our age, if you would. And again, I don't want to get into that too much. But one of the things that we have dealt with is this deception that everything is okay with us and okay with God, okay? There's this deception that everything is fine when the truth is everything is not fine. There's this, it's an illusion of us being intimate with God and intimate with, with Him and, you know, being in full alignment, if you would. But yet we are so far off and we don't even know it. And what happens here is that, if you go back to Revelation 3, it starts by talking about, you know, the problem is that we are neither hot nor cold. And it goes to verse 17. It says, but you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth. I do not need a thing but you do not realize you're wretched, you're pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And again, I'm not here to beat us all up today, okay? So I'm not going to read that again, all right? But we are deceived. That's the part to hold on to. And it's not that you guys in your prayer life are telling God, okay, God, I know you want these things, but I've got money. I've got health and wealth and everything's fine. It's not that you guys are conscious of this, okay? It's, and I said you guys. It's not that we are conscious of this, including myself. It's that it's this, it's this hidden kind of a thread of truth that's not truth at all, that kind of flows through everything we do with God. And it's this illusion, again. And what happens is that we are affected by the culture and by the world, the surroundings that we're in, and it creates this situation where we can sustain life, we can sustain happiness, we can sustain ourselves and our families without God. And what this does is it sets us up for one of the most dangerous things we could possibly have. And that's separation from God. This morning, you know, I would, I would challenge you to say that most of us in this room, it's not that you don't desire God. It's that somehow we used to be, at one point, hopefully, we were here with God. And somehow we've just kind of drifted here. And it's okay. And the hot or cold thing, use that as like a distance, if you would, okay? To be hot is to be at the table. To be hot is to be transparent, to be vulnerable, to be uncomfortable. Who here is like a people person? I mean, like you just... Lord have mercy. 
You just like love people, right? It's easy for you to talk. Okay, I don't, I'm not talking to you then. No. Okay. Who here is not a people person naturally? Like, okay, you are at home alone in your space. Who's that? Well, you know, with your TV. Come. Okay, so there's like 30 people, 60 people who aren't anything. Come on. Okay, you are a people person. You love, you know, to be in social situations. Okay, you do not love to be in social situations. I'm raising my hand for that one. Okay, okay. I'm talking to you then. Okay, good. Rest of you guys, I don't even know what to say to you. Okay. Have you ever had that moment where, like, your, your social energy is just spent? Like, you can just tell. I need to get alone or else I'm about to be a jerk to somebody. Yes? Okay, good. You have that moment where you're sitting down with someone, and it gets quiet, and you realize, I have no conversation starters. I'm empty. Use them all. And there's that moment of awkward silence, and you go, ah, ooh, and you just want to, like, run away. I promise I like you. I just can't talk to you. <laughs> right? And again, you know, you guys raised your hand earlier. I'm not talking to you. Okay. All right. There is something about this that's uncomfortable. Even if you are, you know, people person, there's something about getting close to someone that's uncomfortable. How about this? If I'm talking to you right now, does it make you uncomfortable? How about now? No? No? Now? Oh, I'm picking on you, David. How about now? <laughs> yes. He's like, I'm about to put you in a lock. You're about to be done, man. There's something about it that the closer you get, there, it's not comfortable. It's not. When you go from a big group, smaller, 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 smaller. And then once you have the proximity down, then it becomes about the walls. Who knows you can spend hours around someone and still be miles away from them. Agreed? Yes. Okay. You, you know, you, you, at work you might have people that you're around, you know, all the time, but you don't have close relationship. So it's not proximity with them. Okay. It, it's about your walls. It's about your vulnerability with them. And so for us to be at the table with someone, the first step is coming close. The second step is dropping the walls down. These meals in the Middle East go on for hours. These things are not like, you know, hey, it's, it's lunch break, we got 20 minutes, here's a sandwich. These things go on for hours. And those awkward moments come in. <laughs> So we've talked about the kids, we've talked about the job, we talked about, uh-oh, here comes that awkward moment. And so there's something that forces us, once we've come close to someone, there's that choice. Am I going to put the walls down, or am I going to start to back up? And with this, it applies to people, it applies to all relationships, and obviously it applies with God. Many of you had been to a place of the Lord to where there was a moment or a day or a month or a year or a season of your life where the walls were down. You were close, the walls were down, and it was great. And then for some reason, the walls went up. For some reason, he started taking steps back. It could have been something he did, something he didn't do. Disappointment. It could have been something that someone else did. 
And you just felt like he should have been there to stop it. But for some reason, there's a place in our lives where the walls go up with the Lord and we begin to make distance. We begin to separate ourselves from him. And so what I'm saying to you today is that his heart is that you would be close and that your walls would be down, that you'd be vulnerable. And understand that it's only at the table that we're able to receive everything he has for us. The one thing I don't like about the Lord, and again, this is just being transparent, I don't like he doesn't force things on us. I wish he would just be like that parent who's like putting that food in the child's mouth. You know, you're watching, like, ooh, that's not even legal, you know. Just, yeah, yeah, you need this food, take it. Come on, yes, you've all seen it. You've probably seen it at the church and just don't want to say anything. Ooh. Well, it's not called DHS. Anyways, okay. You've seen that. I wish God would just do that. I mean, sometimes I wish he'd just be like, Devin, you need this, you want it, you just don't know it. Boom. But he won't. He waits. And he waits, and he's patient, and he's gentle, and he's slow, and I hate that sometimes. I just want him just, ugh. And what happens is, it's on us. It is a two-way relationship, and he sits, he sits down at the table and says, I'm here. Food's getting cold, but we can warm it up. Whenever you're ready, I'll be here. You guys staying with me this morning? Now, there are some difficulties to getting to the table. It's not necessarily an easy thing, especially, you know, with the environment that we all live in today. The first obstacle to getting to the table, we don't want to be vulnerable. That's pretty obvious. I'm not even sure if I need to teach on that much more at all. It's not comfortable to be vulnerable. You've all been hurt by someone. Most of you have been hurt by church people. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> okay, let's just move on. You don't need, you, you know... Please don't point anyone in the room, okay? If it's me, I'm sorry, all right? It's hard to be vulnerable because, you know, you've all been hurt. But that's the first, that's the, one of the first obstacles we have to be willing to overcome. It's a risk we have to be willing to take. So the first thing that keeps us away from the table, the first thing that keeps us away from having a genuine relationship with God and with people is that we're not willing to be vulnerable. We're not willing to put the walls down. Secondly, time. We live in a time, sorry about that, where time is so precious. We have so much going on, so much that is vying for our time. It's hard to make time. Time is the most valuable commodity that we all have. It's a question of where we're going to put it. So when it comes to a person... That's one of the first things that you ask yourself, whether it's, it's conscious or subconscious. You go, do I really want to put two hours into this person? I'm sorry if it sounds cold. You all do this, okay? You just don't know if you do, all right? We all do this. Am I willing to devote time to this, to this cause, to this church, to this company, to this person? What am I going to get out of it? Is it worth it? And it's also something that we apply to God. If I challenge you to spend two hours a day with God this week, it would be one of the most difficult things most of us have ever done. And of course, when you think about it, you know, to give God two hours, what is that? It's not much anything, is it? But it would stretch most of us so far. 
Because time is something that most of us choose not to give to God, and we don't put it in the right places. Whether it's our family, our spouses, in the right relationships, in God, in the church, whatever it is, we choose not to give our time to those things. The third obstacle to the table, we have distractions. Most of us have said, well, you know, God, if I could just be in this scenario, if you could just make my life look like this, then I would spend crazy time with you. I would pray all the time. I would trust you. I would do amazing things. If I could just be a missionary, if I could just be a full-time minister, if you could just you know, take care of this bill, if I could just get that job or this position, I, then I would be, it would be great. It would be awesome. And obviously, we all know that that excuse isn't good enough because we all have different distractions. It doesn't matter what area you're in. The enemy will make sure you have distractions. And most of them will actually be good distractions. Good things to pull your time and your attention. But they're not the best. Here's the last one. The last obstacle to the table is that there's so many substitutes to real fellowship. There's so many things that we can put in our lives and say, hey, look, see, I've got fellowship. And it's just a poor, sorry substitute for it. I've heard a lot of pastors teach on social media. You know, we've got Twitter and Facebook. We've got, what's the new ones? Periscope, right? You've got like Vine, Instagram. Some people in the church are going, don't know half those things. Facebook? The World Wide Web. We're good. All right, all right, we're on the same page. We have distractions, okay? And we have this, this thing called social media that is a, it's a very blatant picture of something that is a substitute. It's something that we consider to be connection, something that we consider to be relationships, something that it becomes a substitute for the table. And it's only a picture. I mean, again, you know, social media is not the issue of the world, okay? It's just a substitute. It's one of the things that we deal with, and it's one of the things that we turn to. It's much easier to be connected to people, you know, Here's five seconds. Here is a like. Here's a comment. See, we're friends. I liked your picture. You know, it's easier to do that. Here's my five-second investment in your account than, than taking three hours out of your day to go sit down and eat with someone. It's easier to read your verse of the day on your app. It's easier to, you know, to put in your two hours at church a week. It's easier to find substitutes. For real fellowship. And, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest things that we as Christians, as people, have to wrestle with. I mean, when will we choose to stop accepting less than what God has for us? These substitutes are, are what we fill our lives with. Instead of dreams and accomplishments, what we fill our lives with is work and money. Instead of having genuine friendships, we have, we have acquaintances. Beer buddies. Everyone's like, oh my goodness. 
the guys you watch the game with, your golf partners, whatever it is, you have these cheap substitutes, these situations where you're able to have just enough to where you feel okay, but you don't got to get uncomfortable. We have these empty marriages. We have people who live in the same home, they go through the same motions, but they're 100 miles away. They're near in proximity, but their walls have been up the entire time. They're not willing to risk being hurt again. And you have a form of Christianity that it gives you just enough to feel good about ourselves. We can come in, we can go through the motions, we have the music, here's the gift in the box, the sermon was great, I have just enough to create the illusion that I'm really close, when the truth is I'm 100 miles away. That's all of us, including me. And it's in every form of church. It's not just, you know, charismatic church or seeker-friendly churches or, you know, liturgical churches. We all have substitutes. I used to be in a church to where a great service was whenever the Holy Spirit would come and everyone would get crazy. They'd go home and come back the same. It was just enough to create this illusion of, yeah, it's real. See you later. Okay, we're good. That was great. Shondai. <laughs> It doesn't matter what branch of Christianity. We all have substitutes. We all settle. We all keep our distance and we stay comfortable. And here's the thing. Here's why the table is important. Here's why we need it. Because when we come to the table, it allows us to remove deception. Have you ever had someone that you hadn't met yet and just like you'd heard things about them, and like when you'd see pictures, you'd be like, oh, that person is such a jerk. Be honest. Come on, be honest. This is Grace Church. You can be real. Okay. Have you ever had someone you hadn't met yet, but you heard a lot, and every time you just thought, oh, that person. Oh, just. Have you ever? Yes. Okay. If you're not nodding, I know you are inside. Okay, we've all done that to people. Oh, that person, I just can't stand. So, you know that guy? Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's really bad. Okay. Have you ever had to meet that person? When you had that first kind of encounter, you know, it, it's super quick. Hey, blah, 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 hi. Oh, you, oh man, that guy's a jerk. Whew. I knew it, that guy's a jerk. Have you ever had to sit down with that person before? Five minutes, ten minutes, half an hour? Have you ever had to be in a room with someone to where it got uncomfortable? And when it does, something else comes out. When you get past the empty conversation, you know, all the substitutes. Oh, how are you kids? You know, so what do you do for a living? Okay. And then when you really get to that moment and then one of you decides to share something real and all of a sudden you go, oh, he's not a jerk. I'm a jerk. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Yes. Okay. Deception is one of the most used weapons of the enemy. He uses it with people. Okay. He's constantly trying to, to separate you from people you need in your life. And it's easier for him to deceive you from a distance. Oh, that person. Can you just, can you believe that person? Oh, my goodness. And you get this picture of who they are. But the problem is, there's one solution for it. Sit down with them. There are enough people, maybe on one hand, maybe on one hand, and I'm just going to be honest with you, maybe on one hand that I've actually sat down with, opened up, been vulnerable, and walked away going, yep, that guy's a jerk. <laughs> Come on, please, don't make me feel bad. All right, do I have some people in here? Okay, human beings, good. Okay, saved by grace. Thank the Lord. 
Maybe enough for one hand, though. But the amount of people that have thought bad things from a distance, whoo. But when you get close, you realize, man, those are all lies. It's a real person. They have real hurts. They have real dreams. They're, they're real. And the same thing happens with God. So many of you have been keeping distance from the Lord because you've been far away. Here's what, here's what I'm saying. You've stayed away because you've been convinced of things about God and who He is that you would only believe if you stayed away from Him. You've been convinced things about who God is that if you even got close enough, you would realize instantly those things were so stupid, so wrong. That's not who He is at all. When you, when you get close to someone, you find out who they really are. This is the first reason we have to have the table. And again, I'm not just talking about eating with people, but this is the biggest reason we have to be willing to get close to people and get close to God because you don't really know who He is. If you've allowed yourself to stay away even for a month, a year, whatever it is, if you've kept distance, you've already begun to get the wrong picture of who He is because you have someone who is constantly at work trying to convince you that God is someone He's not. And the longer you stay away, the more convinced you'll be that God is someone that He's not. And it'll be harder for you to fight your way back. Man, that's good. I don't know. I know I'm taking notes. Here's the second thing. The table is important because it makes room for real relationship. I think I've explained that enough. But you have to close the gap first. You have to have that proximity to be able to put the walls down. You can only do so much through texting, you know, you know through, through, you know, your IMing, whatever. You know, you can build a relationship with someone. Take marriage, okay? You can only get so close to someone through a phone. We'll leave it at that, right? There's a part of intimacy and in knowing someone that only happens when you get face-to-face and you start putting walls down. There's a connection. There's, some, there's, there's, there's an ability to know and be known that only takes place in proximity when you're close. It makes room for real relationships. And if you've been wounded so much that you're unwilling to let people close, the truth is you probably don't have very good relationships with anyone. The truth is you're probably, you're probably worn out and exhausted because you're going through life on your own. And if you're really being honest, if, you, if you're so wounded that you've kept your distance from people and from God, the truth is somewhere in your heart, you're trying to convince yourself that you don't even need God. That was good too. So the first reason that we have to come to the table it's because it allows us to really know who people are. It, it, it removes deception. The second thing is it makes room for relationship. And the third thing is this. Because the best things in life happen in relationship. If you haven't learned that yet, you will. The best things in life come in relationship. The bottom line. They don't have a price tag on them. You don't have to you know, invest or give whatever, the best things in life, the things worth living for, come in relationships. With God first and with people second. And if you haven't been willing to get vulnerable, to get close, to get vulnerable, to risk being hurt, that means you're missing out on the best part of life. If you don't know what it's like to truly have a good friend, you're missing out. 
If you don't know what it's like to have a spouse that you fully, 100% trust, a friend, you're missing out. And if you don't know what it's like to have a God that you can literally lean on, trust, and expect to come through for you, you're missing out on the best parts of life. If you guys have your Bibles, here's how we're going to end. We're going to go to Ephesians 4. Before I go there, um, one of the things that really kind of spurred this message was thinking about the last moments of Jesus and what he chose to do on the earth. And, you know, one of the last moments of his life that we see him choosing to do, okay? He's, he knows his time is almost up. He's fully aware. And he has a choice of how he's going to use the remainder of his life, the last few hours of his life. And one of the first things he chooses to do, he chooses to take the Passover meal with his disciples. And the Passover, if you understand this again, it, it's a celebration each year of when God came and protected them from death. When they're in Egypt with Pharaoh, when the spirit of death came, they were told to put the blood of a sacrificial lamb on the doorpost. And it would cause death to pass over their families. And obviously it's a picture of what Jesus would do for us. That his sacrifice would protect us and death would have to pass over us. And so here he is, he's celebrating something. In essence, he's celebrating his death. It's about to happen. And he chooses not to do it, you know, alone in his prayer closet, which you know, he's about to go pray. But he's not this guy who's hiding away in a closet. He's not doing, you know, some super spiritual fast. He's not, you know, he chooses to spend it with friends. He says, you know, he says, Here's what I'm about to go through. And before I go through it, I want to connect with you. I want to have one last chance to sit down with you, to be, to be vulnerable, to be transparent, to connect with you, to be with you, and, and to allow you to be with me and to know me. You know, of course, we even see that in the garden. Even when he does go to pray, he asks that they come with him, and of course, they fall asleep. So, anyways, besides that. And so in this picture, though, we see this this thing where Jesus prioritized the last few moments where he would be breathing, living, experiencing the earth as a human. And he chose to do it at the table with friends. And he's sitting there and he's doing all these tactile things. You know, he's handing out bread and juice and he's explaining these, you know, invisible things and these things they can touch and feel. And again, it's another picture of how we were created and we need this thing. We need this. You know, the Holy Spirit is, is great. He is great. But you were also created to touch and to see and to feel. You were created for people as well. And one of the biggest elements that we miss out on in our relationship with God is people. Seeing and talking, hugging, crying, fighting if you're lucky. Lord have mercy. And here's Jesus, again, encouraging himself. He's not just there to teach them things. He's teaching them things, but if you notice, he's slipping in things going, guys, I'm really kind of scared. You know, I've been telling you about this, this time that's coming. That's right now. I'm about to die. Could you be here with me? And it shows us the need for this. 
And with God and with each other, this thing, this coming close, this being vulnerable, is the biggest thing separating us from the life we always wanted. You guys don't know what that's from. It's good. Um, I mean, seriously. I mean, (laughs) this fear of being wounded again is the biggest thing that separates us from God and from each other. And it's the biggest obstacle that we must overcome to really experience now what God has for us. And the enemy will try anything to separate you. When you're, when you're far away, he will try to trick you into thinking that God and every person that you, know, you want to get close to is going to hurt you and it's terrible, it's going to work out bad, they think terrible things about you, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then when you come close, he's going to try his best to kind of get you to take everything anyone does the worst possible way. (laughs) Have you ever been in that situation where you're so wounded that you just know that something's wrong because everyone who says something, oh, that person's being mean, and they're being mean, and that person doesn't like me? I do that all the time. (laughs) Come on, guys. You've never done that? Thank the Lord. If you guys haven't been to middle school, then I guess you don't know what I'm talking about, right? If you're homeschooled as a child, then you're lucky. Anyways, um, so once we're away, he tries to trick us that people are someone that they're not, that God's someone that he's not. Once we come close, he tries to, you know, to use every possible way to, to get us to, to be hurt, to hurt others, to push people away, to keep our walls up. And then, and then lastly, once we choose to come into relationship with someone, he's going to find every way to use that person to hurt you. Because when your walls are down, you are vulnerable. And you are able to be wounded and to be taken out. He's going to try every way to use that person to wound you. So back to Ephesians. Here's how we do this. Here's how we come to the table. Here's how we overcome our fears. Here's how this whole thing's supposed to work. Um, Ephesians 4 verse 1. So as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with each other in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. It sounds like a really, like, you know, super pretty kind of a trite verse. Let's break it down a little bit. Here's the first thing. He says, first of all, I urge you as a what? As a prisoner. He's not talking spiritual. He's talking literal. He is in jail, okay? He's saying, hey, as someone who is in prison, I don't get to do these things. I am literally unable to be in physical contact with you the way that I desire to. So first of all, you need to do this because I know what it's like to not be able to. So as a prisoner, I encourage you. And he goes on to say, Live a life that's worth, you know, that's, 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 that's worth your calling. Meaning, live in a way that's worth what Jesus did for you. And so everyone think, okay, well, okay. To live in a, in a life worthy of God, that means that we have to be missionaries, we have to give all we have, we have to be super loving, we have to be, you know, all these crazy things. But no, it's not what he says. He says, to live a life worthy of your calling, here's what you do. First step, be completely humble. The first step to coming in a relationship, to having fellowship, to, to having genuine relationship with people and with God is to humble yourself. I'll leave that one there. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. 
bearing with one another in love. So the first step to coming to the table is simple. Humble yourself. Here's a second step. Brace yourself. He, it sounds real sweet. You know, be, be patient, you know, and bear with each other. Here's what that means. Brace yourself because you're about to have a ride. If you're worried about getting hurt in a relationship, here's the news flash. You're going to get hurt. Yeah? Excited yet? Let's do this thing, right? Potluck Sunday? Everyone's <laughs> like, yeah, right. Brace yourself. It's going to happen. But he's saying, hey, you need to be patient and bear with people. Why are you having to be patient and bear with people? Because people are people are people. People are going to be jerks. They're going to misunderstand you. They're going to get frustrated with you. They're going to... But you have to expect it. Humble yourself, first of all, so you're even willing to do this. Believe that God knows better than you. Believe that God actually knows that you need this. And then prepare yourself. Be ready to be patient. It's going to take time. People are hurt just the same way you're hurt. It's going to take time to build a relationship. It's going to take time for people to put their walls down. Bear with them. Here's what bearing means. To wrestle. Be ready to wrestle with someone. Who wants to wrestle? David's like, let's do it. Come on. Take you all. Be ready to wrestle, guys. I mean, goodness gracious. Okay. So brace yourself. Humble yourself. Brace yourself. Here's here's the third step. You've got to try. You have to try. Uh, Ephesians 4, 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Have you made every effort? Have you tried your best to make relationships with each other? Okay, done with that one. Have you even tried 50%? Have you tried 50% to make relationships with each other? To live a life worthy of the calling that, you know, from Jesus, we have to do what? Enter into relationship with each other. What a terrible thing to ask of us. So don't you want me to go to Africa and be a missionary? <laughs> Maybe, but first you're going to learn to be in a relationship, trust people, love people, be hurt by people, and forgive them afterwards. And try again. <laughs> you guys are not taking notes this week, I can tell. <laughs> not going to remember this one. We're going to go home and sleep this one away. All right. You have to be humble. You have to brace yourself. You have to try. Here's the fourth thing. And when you go through that, through that passage, you know, we understand that we're supposed to honor each other more than ourselves. Here's what happens. The fourth step is raise your expectations of people. When you walk into a room with someone who you know who doesn't think much of you, how do you act? Most of you, not very well. But when you enter into a relationship with someone where you know that they're constantly expecting more of you in a loving, gentle way, you rise to the occasion. The best mentors, spiritual fathers in this room are ones who know how to raise expectations. I know that you can do better. Here's where I see you. Here's what you can accomplish. You need to be, it would be amazing if you walked in these doors next Sunday and you're surrounded by people who expected a lot of you, who saw good in you. I expect more from you guys. No, I'm just you guys didn't hear that noise. I'm kidding. It's a joke. Raise expectations. Here's the last thing. You've got to trust God. You've got to trust God. You've, you have to trust that this is word, that he means it, that it's serious, and that he's going to come through for you. In, in all other areas, we know the God, he asks us to step out in faith. We do what we can do, and he does what? He does what we cannot do. 
We step out in faith. He comes through with the miraculous. We do the natural. He does the what? The supernatural. We have to humble ourselves. We have to brace ourselves. We have to try. We have to expect good things from people. And when we do this, we've got to trust that God's going to make it work. How you feeling? Good? <laughs> Woo! Ushers, if you guys want to bring up the table. Oh yeah, we're going there today. The table. We actually brought one. It's plastic. It's kind of, kind of rickety. It's probably a really good analogy for this morning, right? It's a good place to start, okay? We're going to start with this table, and then one day we're going to have a really nice, you know, super beautiful mahogany table, maybe. Although I'm not sure we can move that. That's okay. If you guys would stand with me, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion today. Understand that most of the problems that you see the Apostle Paul taking care of in the New Testament church came from one place. It's called the love feast. Okay? Each day, they would meet together to break bread, to eat. It's called the love feast. Okay? The agape meals. Okay? Where they would sit down and take communion together. And to them, communion was not like a one-time thing, you know, as we do it. It was, it was the entire meal. They would sit down, hundreds of them in one room, and be breaking bread together in small groups. And as they did it, as they had the meal that took a half an hour, an hour, two hours, it was one of the things that reminded them of the importance of relationship and relationship. And it was the place where most of the problems arose. Most of the places where you see Paul getting angry, correcting people, was because at the love feasts, people would make clicks. They'd walk in and... The rich believers would have a table. The Jewish believers would have a table. The Gentile believers would have a table. The poor beggars, the lepers, we'd over here. And Paul said, what are you doing? You're missing the entire picture of communion. That at the table with God, when we sit down with Jesus, we also, because He elevates us, we elevate each other. I choose to see you the way He sees me. Because Jesus will sit at the table with me and honor me and see value in me, you're going to sit at the table and see value in each other.